This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. The Trade Commissioner Service at the Consulate General of Canada in Minneapolis, which supports trade and investment opportunities between Canada and the upper Midwest states of Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. Hi, I'm Brett. And this is Aditi. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And how robots are going to take over the world. Welcome to the show, everyone. Well, before robots, Brett and Steph, do you eat certain foods for the main purpose of health and wellness? I'd put eating kale into that category, but the more I eat it, the more I like it. But I definitely eat it because it's a good green that you're supposed to eat. I do the same thing. I, I eat a lot of greens. I like salads. I like greens, but I probably eat more of them for the purpose of a more anti-inflammatory diet and, and just general health and wellness. Brett, what about you? I don't think that there's anything I eat that I don't enjoy eating that I eat specifically because of the health benefits. But I do enjoy vegetables and lots of vegetables and eating those types of things. Well, the idea of food as medicine has been out there for a while, but some programs have really taken it to the next level. Back in 2016, Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania piloted the Fresh Food Pharmacy, in which type 2 diabetes patients were given fresh food along with cooking tools and recipes. And the program, guys, was a huge success. It's really a neat one. It's helped 3,000 families and served its millionth meal and, most importantly, illustrated the critical role that food can play in not just preventing illnesses but combating disease. So our question today is, is the pharmacy of the future a pharmacy with an F? Get it? And that brings us to today's guest, Josh Hicks, co-founder and CEO of Season, which works with health providers to create nutritional meals and menus for patients, including those living with diabetes and heart disease. It's a fascinating show, guys, and it's really cool to see how this Geisinger program really touched off this huge national trend. For sure. I mean, and what you put in your body 100% affects your health and your health outcomes. Now, there's a a line to that, you know, and so there's a lot of crazy claims out there as well. And I think we get into that a little bit where this thing makes you feel better. But, you know, you mentioned heart disease in that, Aditi, and heart disease is 100% affected by eating certain types of diets and you can improve it by changing your diet. And so it makes total sense to me. It was so fun to just talk with Josh and hear about his journey and season's journey because food is medicine, honestly, is a hugely hot topic in the world that Brett and I work in and in investing right now. It's a an area that's of real interest to a lot of the corporations that we work with and different investors. And so it was fun to actually talk about it in reality of what does this look like when it's part of a business model. And it's cool when you see food tech kind of converging with health tech in that way. Well, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. Mermaid Seafood just raised more than $3 million in seed funding. It's an Israeli cultivated seafood company that seeks to make cell-based scallops at scale. Mermaid takes the bio-waste from its cell-cultured food and then takes that combo of water, ammonia, and carbon dioxide to feed algae, which is then used as a growth media to feed the cells. Get it? Guys, there's so much competition in cultivated seafood that in order to differentiate themselves, companies seem to be looking for ways to maybe produce more efficiently. Is that what they're trying to do and cut those costs? 
Yep. One of the big inhibitors to a more widely adopted cell-based protein alternative is the cost of production. It's not the consumers don't want it, in my opinion. I think that consumers will adopt cell-based as soon as it is has price parity with traditional proteins. And two of the biggest costs are actually the fermentation process or the growing process of it. And to grow, you need a medium that it grows in. And so you're seeing a lot of different startups out there and their differentiator isn't that they're making shrimp or chicken or beef or whatever, or scallops in this case. It's the differentiator is they have a unique medium that is their secret sauce that is less expensive and enables you to grow faster, or they have a unique fermentation process. Well, speaking of being more efficient with resources, next, Canada's Vive Crop Protection just closed a $26 million Series C round led by Emertech. Vive has come out with a specialized nanoscale polymer-based delivery system that allows farmers to deploy crop protection products with a lot more precision, and that saves them water and fuel and reduces their environmental footprint. Precision farming has been such a dynamic area within food tech. Brett, what does it take for a company to stand out? Because there's so many competitors out there. There's a lot of companies that are doing different things in precision farming. It is really, really hard. I think that the biggest thing is, can you prove the efficacy of whatever you're doing from a precision farming standpoint? So to raise $26 million Series C, what they will have had to done at this point is they'll be able to show demonstrable increases in yields in their crops by using their process and demonstrable reduction in the spray. And if you're using less product, then you have the positive externality, right, that you are reducing your the carbon footprint as well. I think what Brett's talking about, too, of proving out to farmers that you can actually make a difference for them is one of the things that has made getting into precision farming actually a little bit difficult at the very beginning, just because you're selling to people who have been told numerous times this is going to increase your yield. This is going to lower your costs. And it hasn't always worked. And so now I think we're seeing growers be a little bit more cautious in terms of working with brand new companies. Now, dairy farmers here, a Dutch company named Lely showed off Lely Astronaut A5 milking robot at a German agricultural fair this summer. It is pretty cool if you've seen a picture of it. No human hands on these cows. Besides the automation benefit for dairy farmers, using robots to milk cows also allow the cows more freedom of movement and dials into the cow's natural rhythm, therefore causing them less stress and improving their health. Is this type of tech yet, though, at a cost that's scalable for dairy farmers? And if not, how long will it take to get there, guys? So, there's a lot of automated milking technology out there already. And if you look at the big enterprise dairy farms, like it's not a human being out there like on a stool squeezing the cow udders of milk into a bucket, right? They are very much automated. And I imagine for this company, it's those other couple things of it reduces stress so the cow will be able to produce more milk. There's lower chance of infection, which is actually a huge issue in the dairy industry is mastitis in dairy animals. So those types of things matter a lot. And I imagine that what this company's value prop isn't that it's automated as much as it improves the ROI of the dairy industry, just like what we just talked about with precision agriculture. Same thing here. You did bring up an interesting point, though, Aditi, of is this type of tech yet at a cost that allows scale? And we look at a lot of robotics throughout the ag tech and livestock world. And the answer for a lot of robotics right now is no, they're not yet quite there, but they're getting there really fast. And we're starting to see it. We're starting to see folks with lower bombs, bill of materials that actually make a robotic solution scalable. 
Well, coming up, Josh Hicks tells us how launching one of the most successful meal kit companies led him to focus on the connection between food and health. Food has long been associated with health. We often tell kids to eat their veggies so they'll get stronger. Your doctor may tell you to drink plenty of fluids when you have a cold or a flu. Fatty fish or eggs give you omega-3s. Oranges are a good source of vitamin C. Bananas have potassium, and the list goes on and on. So it's kind of remarkable that food isn't typically a part of medical treatment for chronic diseases like diabetes. Josh Hicks wants to change that. He's the founder of Season Health. It's a platform which allows health providers to give patients meal plans and recipes and even connects them to grocery delivery sites to help treat diseases with wholesome foods. Interestingly enough, it was Hicks's previous company, Plated, a meal kit startup that was acquired by Albertsons in 2017, that made him consider launching a company centered around food as a vehicle for health benefits. But the story of how he ended up as a veteran founder starts much earlier, during a childhood marked by a lot of moving and a lot of math. I had a fairly classic military childhood. Dad was Air Force, which meant we moved a lot. And that, in combination with just the timing of going from elementary school to middle school and everything else, meant that I ended up doing an awful lot of schools, 12 by my best count, over the 12 years. And part of that experience was My mom is a very hardcore engineer, PhD, electrical engineering, master's in all kinds of math and all sorts of other stuff. And I think I got the fairly classic Asian tiger mother, you know, kind of childhood experience. So a lot of emphasis on math, a lot of summers spent doing math. It was good, although didn't appreciate it at the time. But I think childhood was a lot of moving, which was helpful in seeing a lot of different parts of the country. I feel like I experienced a lot of the U.S. in ways that, you know, I think not a ton of people get to do and not just the big cities, not really the big cities at all as a kid. And an emphasis on, you know, math and engineering. And how did those seeds that got planted there, how did they end up developing through the course of your childhood and when you went to college? Did you study engineering? I did. I don't know that I had much of a choice, although to my parents' credit, it did feel like a choice at the time. That was what I was interested in. It was always math, science, engineering, some version of those things. If I wasn't doing those things, if I wasn't playing with whatever computer was in the house or objecting to doing my the math homework I was given of the day, I was reading sci-fi. So I think I was always kind of on that path and to nobody's real surprise, My undergrad experience was electrical engineering and a bunch of freelancing. I was in college, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, and got to live through the first bubble, which I think was, a, in hindsight, a very valuable experience. I was there for the crazy times when all these entrepreneurs, local folks, would show up on campus and literally just kind of hang flyers for engineering students to come and build, you know, at that time building even a website or a mail server was very difficult. My friends and I would do that work and charge what we thought were sort of crazy rates. And then a year or two later, after the bubble burst, virtually all of those companies were gone. Nobody was paying those crazy rates anymore. There was still plenty of work, but it wasn't the same. And I think living through that was a good early experience. And obviously, Season is not your first company. Walk us through the first company you founded and why. So 
the first company was really sort of a result of that college consulting, you know, so I was, was working with friends over the summers and a little bit during the semesters for, you know, beer money and just for fun in a lot of ways. And one of those, you know, sort of consulting projects turned into a company. We had built something for a small business in Atlanta. I went to Georgia Tech and we kind of looked around and realized as we were getting closer to graduation that one, none of us really wanted to go do the traditional thing. And two, that we had built something we thought we might be able to sell to lots of other small businesses, sort of multi-location small businesses. So we went and did just that. What was the name of the company? It was called ZWise. So we were kind of a financial aggregation business intelligence product for multi-location businesses, i.e. franchisees. And it was a great learning experience. It was not a great business. All kinds of lessons in there about distribution and the difference between customers and users, which often happens in these enterprise sales, team and angels and capital. And again, most of these things are very painful in the moment, but in hindsight was an unbelievable sort of first lesson in entrepreneurship, probably a a master's, if you will, which was great. And where did you move on from after ZWise? So that was a, a foundational experience. And along with a key mentor or two, I credit with getting me into Harvard Business School. So went off and did that, which was a phenomenal experience. The MBA, I feel like is a somewhat of a controversial thing these days, but speaking just for myself, it really was an inflection point in my life. Got to meet and become lifelong friends with people just of a variety of backgrounds I never would have encountered otherwise. Professionally, you know, their national backgrounds, everything. So that was a phenomenal two years. And I spent my summer actually working for essentially an incubator building healthcare businesses in New York, which turns out to be really relevant for Season, the current company many years later. But this really, I think was an instance of the dots connecting in hindsight. There was no grand plan. It was just a very interesting opportunity. And again, to the theme, I didn't want to go do the traditional kind of big company thing. And so this was a very exciting opportunity for my, you know, my one summer over the business school years. Common path for the founders that we work with, honestly. Yeah. Georgia Tech electrical engineer, food. Perfect. Wow. Good. Should uh, give lots of credence to all the Georgia Tech engineers out there who are doing something a little different. So my co-founder, Nick Taranto, and I had met very early on at business school. Nick and I had known each other for a long time. We, you know, had the right complementary skill sets. We had done, I think, enough of the right kinds of stressful, hard work together to have conviction that we could work together. And in terms of the food part, I would say two things. One was both of us, and Nick even more so than I, had tried to be serious athletes. Nick was a Marine and ultra marathoner, has done some Ironmans. I have done nowhere near the intensity of any of those things, but, you know, like to be a weekend warrior of sorts. What sport? I grew up swimming and in recent years have done a handful of triathlons, but just the the short sort of baby ones, no Ironmans. Well, that still gives you a lot of street cred in my book, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, appreciate that. And the point of that was part of our friendship was a shared interest in nutrition. Now, we liked food as much as the next folks, we were having the same you know, pain point, which was we were late 20s, early 30s, and we were living in New York City. 
and we were just eating takeout every single day. And one, eventually you start to not feel very good. It's not very healthy. It's hard to, you know, have portion control or anything else when you're eating restaurant food every day. And two, when we did try to cook, whether it was for ourselves or for significant others, we weren't impressing anybody, even ourselves. And so after six months of sitting in a room and figuring out what we were going to build together, we sort of landed on, on this idea that we would make it easier for people to cook. You know, our own problem, solve our own problem, classic consumer story. And away we went. So in 2012, at least to the best of my fuzzy memory, and there was a lot of, a lot of late nights in there, so feel free to fact check this. The big service in New York was Grubhub, seamless Grubhub and Fresh Direct for groceries. There wasn't a ton of meal delivery. I, I can't think of another big company. And I think part of what happened over the next decade was certainly Facebook. The thing that still kind of blows my mind is we incorporated Plated in June of 2012. Facebook's IPO was only May of 2012. So they were still new as a business. There wasn't a lot of maturity in the marketplace for ads and such on Facebook. And so it was still very cheap to advertise. It was cheap to acquire customers, which sounds crazy to say today, but it was cheap. I mean, sometimes free to acquire customers on Facebook. And I think that really spawned a multi-year wave of direct-to-consumer businesses. And many of them were food. Yeah. I was building a company at the same moment in time and you could game like the Google system still. It was a really interesting time to go in and think about doing search engine marketing was very different in 2009, 10, 11, 12 than it is today. And you could, if you were really smart and knew what you're doing, you could, you could outthink it a little bit. Josh, can I ask when you first started, how much did you think about the quality and makeup of the food and the different recipes versus the logistics side of the business? Like what did you kind of go after first? What kind of a company were you? Were you a food company, a logistics company, a content company, like tech company? What were you? I think we were a crazy company because we tried to do all of that, which was a whole new set of mistakes to make around not having you know enough focus. We certainly were a logistics company. You know, there was no getting away from that. Although I would say a better label perhaps was a manufacturing company. And I think this was one of the things that we, the sort of misnomers about the business over time. There was a lot of complexity in the sourcing of food and in the kitting of it. The delivery was done by FedEx and other third-party partners. So the sort of logistics in the way that most people think was third parties, but the kind of manufacturing, if you will, was a huge undertaking I would also say that we were a software company. It's something that a lot of entrepreneurs say, but I really do think that that was, if not the defining attribute that made the company succeed, it was certainly top three. So Plated, you started in 2012 and you sold to Albertsons in 2017. And a lot happened in that space between those years. There were a lot of meal kit companies can you kind of walk us through that evolution, why we saw so much competition and you guys had a positive outcome. A lot of companies didn't. What made the difference? What made the difference? I think the honest answer is certainly there's a good bit of luck. Have to just acknowledge the timing of all kinds of things, including when we started. 
it's a question I get a lot from entrepreneurs. You know, what did you, what did you guys do in the beginning to acquire customers? What can I do? And I always feel bad because the answer was start at a time when Facebook was free. It's a very, very unsatisfying answer, but that was what we did. And we didn't do that out of some grand plan. It was just right place, right time. Add a lot of hard work and a lot of, you know, sleepless nights. And that's true for most entrepreneurs, but still, I think it's, it's kind of table stakes. And we were able to get to a good outcome. One thing we did that I think we were particularly proud of was to try to be thoughtful and rational about how we raised money. We didn't go out and raise at what we thought to be crazy multiples that you know we wouldn't be able to grow into, that wouldn't be good for employees or investors, except in the one scenario of cascading miracles where everything goes literally perfectly right. You know, the idea of being priced to perfection, we avoided that when we had control. And certainly there were fundraising rounds where we didn't, and we had to just kind of take the terms that we had or that were offered. But managing that cap table and the investors, I think was something that we were proud of. I think it's part of what allowed us to exit. And it meant that when we did, every single person from our warehouse workers through to the latest investors all made money. And I don't say that to imply that that's the point. It's not the point, but it is a very important thing to manage. We didn't want to sell the business. We were fully prepped to go public. That was our path. There was so much we wanted to do, including getting into something more directly health and nutrition oriented. But nonetheless, you know, we had managed the way that we raised money in a way that allowed us to have a graceful kind of off ramp. That is so interesting because it sounds like there was unfinished work there that seems to have led to what you're doing now. Tons of unfinished work. We sold to Albertsons in the fall of 2017. I stuck around and learned the grocery business for a little while. And when I left, still had this kind of big, although fuzzy, idea in my head of building something more directly in the health and nutrition space. Food, but kind of the other elements of food. So I quickly partnered up with Mustafa, my now co-founder, who had just spent the last five years, give or take, as the founding CTO of Quartet Health, now a very large sort of rumored billion-ish size mental health business, and Dr. Andrea Feinberg, who had been the founding physician at the Geisinger Fresh Food Pharmacy. So Geisinger, big hospital system, kind of payer provider integrated system in Pennsylvania, Andrea had started this program, the Fresh Food Pharmacy, in 2016, which has become in many ways the sort of benchmark for food as medicine. It's an amazing program. They've had amazing success with it, but I think came to the conclusion that as a hospital system, their core business was not building software, was not really scaling these programs, and so they were looking for a partner. Even though there was so much that was the same, it was somewhat of a pivot. You had Mustafa to help you with the health tech side. But when we look at health tech and particularly having to deal with the payer ecosystem, it is so bureaucratic. There's been talk about how just there's not a lot of pricing transparency. So how do you meet with those challenges as you're building this business? Yeah, it's hard to overstate how <laughs> opaque a lot of it is. In terms of how we deal with it, you know, I think it's a, a classic entrepreneurial sort of story. It doesn't mean that it's easy. I think we've been fortunate enough to, you know, find the best people that we can 
convince them in some way to join the team, either as an investor, an employee, an advisor, and just learn from them. So on the healthcare side, we've got folks who used to work at payer insurance organizations. We've got folks who have sold into those organizations. We've got folks who have done both. We've got investors who currently are those institutions and really just trying to listen to them as much as possible and figure out how to solve their problems for them. How does Season work? Season is a software platform. So this is the first big difference. We don't make the food that allows clinicians, dietitians, doctors, whoever it might be, to prescribe nutrition. And then for patients, a consumer-grade app to actually fulfill that prescription. So kind of the old way is a patient would see a dietitian for really any kind of condition, but we have specialized for now in chronic disease. So patients with diabetes, kidney disease, certain forms of cancer, there's a long list. And the clinician would say some form of, Josh, go home, eat less of this, more of that. Oftentimes there'd be 20, eat less of these 20 things and more of those 20 things and these very specific, you know, amounts. And it's just wildly impossible for anybody to actually do. And so in the new world that we imagine and that we think is coming true today with our anchor partners, Geisinger, Cricket, a few others, is that clinician can do the part that they know, the part that they are trained for, that they have the time for in the encounter they can go through and write the so-called nutrition prescription. No more than this amount of potassium on a daily basis. Manage your magnesium to here. Manage your carbs and your fat to these targets and so on and so forth. And then let the patient show up as a consumer. Because one of our core beliefs is food is a consumer good. I think we all look at a menu and think the same thing first, which is what looks good on here. What's going to taste good? What am I in the mood for? And so you've got to meet people where they are. So that's what we do. Allow the clinician to do the nutrition part and then let the patient do the consumer food part. Put it all together. And the patient experience is they've got an app that they can use anywhere you buy food digitally, which turns out to be a lot of places these days can be everything from your Walmart curbside grocery pickup to your Uber Eats delivery to the QR code you're scanning at a restaurant. Anywhere that's digital is now an opportunity for us to help that patient make the right decision for their health condition, for their family, whoever they're eating with. And oh, by the way, the insurance companies are paying for at least some of the food in some cases. And so we are also a payment vehicle to transfer those funds in compliant ways. Can you go a layer deeper on the tech? Like one more step into how are you actually making those recommendations of here's from your plethora of options, what to pick out? Sure. So on the tech, the way that we think about the tech and the the sort of food part of the experience, because there is, by the way, a whole other clinical piece to the business I haven't touched on, we can come back to, but on the food part, we're taking those clinical preferences or they're really not preferences, the sort of clinical requirements, and then the consumer preferences, putting it all together and doing sort of what you'd expect these days. There's a pretty robust AI machine learning effort in the background. There's a growing team of data scientists. You know, our head of data science is a Stanford PhD, brilliant person. And what we're doing is essentially search for food. It's really a story of making it easy. I think that's a 
maybe not overlooked, but healthcare has a long way to go in making all of our experiences easy. So that's a big emphasis for us. If everything goes right, and this is the right time for season, what does it look like in a few years from now? And how does it change consumer behavior in regards to how they look at food? It's a great question. I think how it changes behavior is that we allow people to make the changes they want to make. And I think that's first off an important distinction, right? We're not going to convince anybody to do anything they don't want to do. You've got to have that spark of a desire to change. And then hopefully we can help fan that into a flame for you, but you've got to want to change. And in terms of what it looks like, I think the vision, at least at a high level, we want to be Google Maps for food. We want to be the app that you use to buy all of your food. Down the road, do you think pharmacies with an F will replace pharmacies with a PH? I think this is a really interesting question. And at the risk of playing clinician here, I think no. I think there's a tremendous amount of excitement, and rightfully so, about preventative care and about sort of therapeutic care, right? Preventing disease and treating disease. But the reality is that at least some disease happens no matter what. And I think that's actually important to say, right? Sometimes it just happens and there's no amount of preventative care that can stop that from happening. And so the pH pharmacies are going to be needed for all kinds of reasons. There's some things that I don't think we want to let go of. All right, you ready to go for the lightning round? Ready as I'm going to be. All right, we're going to start off easy. You said you went to 12 different schools growing up uh, in lots of different states. What's your favorite state? California. California. I feel like we've had that answer before. What's harder, food or healthcare? Food. Ooh, I don't know if I expected that one. All right. You had internet early on at your house. What was your childhood screen name? Coasty. All right. You love health and nutrition. What's your number one food recommendation? Avocados. And on the flip side, what's one food that I might not expect that I shouldn't eat as much of? Bacon? Oh, man. Bacon's so good. Don't tell me that. Let's cut that out of DD. What's the most complex system that you've worked in? Ugh, healthcare. Ooh, healthcare, but food is harder. That's an interesting, uh, we should have dug into that a little bit more, but we're not, we don't have time anymore. When was the last time you electrically engineered anything? Last year. Wow, that's impressive. All right, last one. What's more important for season? The UI UX of the product for the consumer or the underlying data and algorithms behind it? That is impossible to answer. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with UI UX. That's where I would go. All right, that's all we got. You survived. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Amit, the CEO and founder of Transship. Amit, what are you doing right now? What pain point are you solving? 
Look, the supply chain is outdated, inefficient, technology challenged, and basically commandeered by multinational companies who have been around forever. Shippers are basically left at the mercy of their providers. So it could be the freight forwarders, could be the shipping companies. If you want to ship your product from one point to the other, you got to work with them. But they don't get any information on their shipments. The rates are extremely high. They cannot even build their own shipment. They're uh, told when their shipment will leave and when it will arrive. And this industry still uses fax machines for some reason in 2022. And that gives you kind of the inside look as to how technologically advanced this industry is. How are you solving this? So we're uh, at Transship automating the freight forwarding and basically the cold supply chain portion of this. We're not going to be using fax machines. We have document sharing technology. We're basically trying to empower the shipper with not only better pricing, but we're letting them do a kayak version of shipping internationally so they can choose what lane they want to choose, the cheapest lane, the most efficient lane, the shortest lane. So it's all about giving the shippers the tools, the information that empowers them. Putting the power back in the shippers' hands. That's cool. How are you going to take over the world with this company? The companies that I'm going up against are dinosaurs. And they won't be able to compete with our technology. That's not what they do. That's not their business model. We are a tech startup doing supply chain. They're supply chain companies who are based on manual labor. So every shipment at some point is going to be touched by Transship one day. Today, I'm here with Mandy, the CEO and co-founder of Availist. Mandy, welcome to the show. What's the problem that you're solving at Availist? So right now, every month, 8.6 billion people are searching for food near me. But what they're finding in the results is just what's close, what's being paid to be seen, or what Steve down the street likes. What they really want to know is what food do I like that's near me? And we're going to help them with that. How are you solving this problem? So Availist is, we're a food discovery platform. We help you, Brett, and others like you find and compare across your local options for grocery, restaurants, convenience, and alcohol. And then we surface the results to you based on what you actually care about. What's the big vision here? It's already a big problem, but how are you going to take over the world? Yeah, one bite at a time, but you know, you're going to go to Google to search, you're going to go to Amazon to shop, but you're going to come to Availus to decide. So going back to that original question, is the pharmacy of the future a pharmacy with an F? Guys, your take. I think it has to be. I, I mean, I don't think that's obviously going to replace what we consider to be modern medicine. But I think that food is going to play more and more of a role in how we look at and manage our health moving forward. It's hard. I think you're always going to have a segment out there that does not take into account what they put into their bodies and how it affects their health. And that's okay, I guess. So yeah, I think it's a combination of the two. But 100%, like what we eat and how we eat it and when we eat it should be something that we all think about. I think we still have some societal things to get over before everyone is truly able to take health into account when they think about their food. And when you look at the big pharmacies, the Walgreens and the CVSs, in recent years, you've seen those places increasingly carrying some fresh foods. One of the reasons there's a huge push for food as medicine and eating healthier and changing diets is it's a lot less expensive for insurers or companies that have insurance plans, which is where a lot of this is getting driven through, like big enterprises that aren't even health companies. They're like, hey, let's help our employees eat better because we're actually going to save money in the long run. 
Because we're going to have less healthcare costs for our employee bases. Healthier people and lower costs. That's a great combination and a great way to say goodbye for now. We'll see you guys here next week. Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.